Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast episode one, number 140, <laughs> which is the first episode where I realized that Yoram's calling PPP was not just him forgetting that Plants and Pipettes only has two P's, it's actually <laughs> Plants and Pipettes podcast. Um, I'm Tegan, that's uh, Yoram. Hi, I'm Yoram. And I also like that you called out the number because you just asked me what the document number is because we really <laughs> rarely call out the number of the episode. I know where I'm at. 140 just felt like such a significant number. Number. I mean, it has deep meaning. <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely. At least it's round, I guess. <laughs> what have you been up to, Yarm? Where have oh, you been? I mean, I've been mostly here. Um, I've, I've done a short holiday recently um, to a far away place in Brandenburg, which is just outside of Berlin. Um, but it was nice. It was good. It was, uh, it was relaxing um, a little bit and... I got back into ge- uh, geocaching. That's something I did like literally <laughs> 12 years ago or something like that. I did it for like one summer during university times um, where I would like with an app go out and look if I find something. And I, it's also I did, basically like, maybe Pokemon 10. Go, right? Yeah, but it's like you you actually find little physical film canister boxes with like a little logbook inside where you write your name and then... He was stash okay. it away again. Um, it's it, it's sort of fun. It's sort of like organized trespassing because you're like like it's technically it's always on on public grounds, but you're like standing somewhere like in a public park next to the bushes, and like looking suspiciously like like if you're some drug dealer <laughs> who's looking for their stash, um, but you just really want to find like the little hidden plastic box that somebody else hid. Um, and so we did that on holiday and we were like in some remote small village, and for some reason there were like three different caches in like. 20 minutes walking distance and so like with the kids we did a little like uh, treasure hunt because my son really wanted to like find go find a treasure that was like when we asked him in the morning what do you want to do he's like today is treasure finding day and then I was like oh yeah treasure finding there's ge- uh, geocaching let's let's look had you been like priming him with what you could no it's just like from like pirate stories and stuff like you know okay, these, like okay. the kids stories and their treasures exist there and he thinks that you can just like go and find a treasure with like silver and toys was he excited and... by the treasure or was he a little bit disappointed that it was a small book rather than like I think a ton of gold and a mermaid like for a for a moment he was a little bit disappointed he expected like some gold and diamonds <laughs> but he hit and, it well <laughs> but then like he was still excited to to go look for for these little things and then like to this day you can still ask him like the what color the containers were because they were all like a little bit like one was like a film canister the other was like one of these pet bottles before they're inflated um you can buy them on Amazon. It's like a li- like you have like the screw on cap, like a PET bottle, but then you have just like a little clear cylinder. Um, okay. That's not yet inflated to the full PET bottle shape. Um, and so yeah, he will describe them to you, and he was really excited to find those, and he wants to find more now in Berlin. And so maybe next weekend we'll go treasure hunting in Berlin as well. So yeah, that 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 was fun, and I really wanted like. I don't know on a, like on a coolness scale, and usually I don't really care about being cool because like I'm definitely and not very cool um but geocaching is it's so nerdy it's to me it's like on a on a level with like people who go around with metal detectors in in the sand and look for treasure there um but like on a public playground like you see them all the time <laughs> you see like weirdos with like metal detectors i don't know i find it like deeply weird um hobbies to have but i don't know it's outdoors you're like searching you're using I guess you're using some kind of like orienteering skills as well somehow. Yeah, That's... some like fancy technology, like either like satellite positioning data or like a thing that with some black magic can find metal in the ground. I would say it's like it's not nerdier than the normal things you do, Yarm. I would. It's fine. <laughs> <Yes>. Like <laughs> you're not making yourself more nerdy by involving yourself in this activity. <laughs> Carry on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that 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 was what I was up to. And did you do something fun in the like ages since we talked? <laughs> yeah, I, I'll give like the last couple of days. Maybe I did um, I did like an Australia kind of party, which I haven't done for many many years now. Um, oh. where I just made like Australian food to share with people that I know in this country. That was kind of fun. Is so. it already Australia Day again? It's not Australia Day. So Australia Day is in January twenty six currently. Um, but this also represents the day when um, the British landed in Australia, which obviously for the indigenous population is not a particularly happy day. So there's been a big petition to change the date and try to make it actually more you know, equitable and enjoyable for all Australians, which is also why I haven't 
celebrated Australia Day for a long time. And this year I like I wanted to sort of do it for my new friends in London, but I didn't want to do it on that date. Um, also, it doesn't make sense in this hemisphere anyway, because it should be somehow sunny and it's not sunny. Um, so one of the, the only other days when people think that it might work, there's not any agreement on when you would have Australia Day if it wasn't this this current day, which is Jan 26. Mm-hmm. But one of the suggestions, and I think I've told you this, is May the 8th, because, mate. <laughs> yeah, it's sad that you laughed at that. But I thought I would try and do it via, like, on that day, unfortunately, somebody stole my freaking thunder. We have a new king, and that was the day that he chose to do his thing, <laughs> where he wore the pretty coat. Um, so I had to push my own thing back a week. Um, I, I think really, like... Um King Charles should have rescheduled on on behalf of May. Exactly, it's. I, I mean, it's the thing. Now he's ruined that for all. Like that can't be our Australia Day, right? Because it's like current. I don't know how it works in the future. I guess we don't yeah, celebrate I, Coronation Day. Yeah, I mean, did you ever celebrate Coronation Day for the Queen? I have no idea. Like, no, but she was around for seventy. I think at one point you get. He's just like. Well, we had like the the Jubilees, right? Yeah, but I, I assume but that was was it, was it her birthday. I assume that was linked to when she... It was like years of being queen. Monarchy is so weird. Super weird. Also, like, he got... It's a bit like the thesis submission. Like, he got coronated now on May 8th, but he actually became king when she died, right? So it's kind of like you submit your thesis and you're already really finished, but then you still have to, like, do the final edits or defend. That's like the coronation. (laughs) That was a very bad analogy. But anyway, try and hold that in your mind, kids. I just wish he would have had to defend something. Like he would have show, had to show like specific knowledge about the country and there's like a panel oh, of like five different got... guys who, who's who are asking him questions and then he's like, Oh yeah, I don't really know about this this part of it and uh I mean some lady got a sword. There was some like minor British um not celebrity parliamentary sort of person and yeah. like they had cool outfits. They got like cloaks and, and tiara kind of things like the royalty but there was this one lady who was just like she had like also leafy patterns so very plant based but she was like walking around with a giant whopping sword like yeah I saw that, that like, I saw cool. an article like who is the mysterious woman with the sword and um, apparently like she has like some some role but she's not very well known to the public but an important part of her role is like bearing the sword and I don't know <laughs> I mean, I don't know if she does that normally. I think that was like a coronation special. I don't think like I mean, I, th- I imagine it's like in her job description, but for like <laughs> for seventy years, it was just part of the job description. But they were like, yeah, but yeah, you don't need that. It's like whatever. It's like when you when you're like hired for doing PR work, but there's also some accounting on on the job thing, and you're like, yeah, you don't really have to do the accounting. There's other people, but then the other people are on holiday, and suddenly you do the accounting and have to figure out how how invoices work. Um, and I think it's the same with the sword. Suddenly it's just like, oh yeah, on we we checked on your on your job description. You should be the one with the sword. We thought it's like somebody, but like it's you. And then they had to figure out how to do that. Yeah, I mean, every now and then, like politicians make terrible decisions for our country that you know ruined our countries. And I think you <laughs> know what? Rare, I wish though. I'd it's done very politics. Rare, though. <laughs> very rare, very rarely. Um, but this was another one of those. You know, every now and then you're like, oh, I wish I had that job. I'd do that so much better. And that was one of those times where I was like, oh, I wish I had that job. Like, I'd be so good at wielding that sword. So freaking awesome. <laughs> yeah, but you can't do any like sword tricks with it before handing it over. You can't like yeah, flip I think it, you have to also like it. look serious and not like smile or like my like I would want to like do a sort of menacing owl look at people while I held my sword, like kind of this like angry. <laughs> I'm doing it at Yarm now. Listeners, you can't appreciate this is not the right medium, but yeah. I'd want to do facial expressions, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. Shall we talk about plants, Yarm? <laughs> Um, yeah, that's, that's just like one thing I want to mention because like technically, like very r- real, I haven't put out the last episode yet while we're recording this episode because <gasps> I just didn't have the time and I want to apologize for that. Um, I've, I was just like very exhausted and overwhelmed with everything with kids and work and stuff. Um, and so it's on me that we're like sort of on a delayed schedule. Uh, I guess like... Nobody's really mad at us, but I just wanted to explain, like, there's nothing, like, bad happening. It's just, and it's not that we don't want to do this anymore. We really want to do this, but I just have so little energy to, like, read stuff. But not today. Today I actually read some papers and really excited about the stuff that I read. 
happy and ready to go. So let's let's do that. I want to press my little like clever soundboard again, but I, I broke it somehow, so now I have to do it all manual. Um, because I today have a favorite plant. My favorite plant this week is tree Pheophyllum peltatum, and uh, I know you you're very good with Latin, so you can tell me what tree Pheophyllum means. Three part leaf or something? Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah? It's like three kinds of leaves. Okay. Um, so this is a plant that grows in the, the uh, rainforests of West Africa. Um, and it's a plant that makes three different kinds of leaves, like distinct kinds of leaves during its life cycle. Uh, when it's young, it makes um, these, very, they're called simple leaves because they're mm -hmm. simple leaves. They're, what is ex exciting about them is, and I forgot what the fancy word for it is, but they're sort of wider at the, at the tip than at the stem. So they're sort of like like a club. They are extending outwards um, compared compared to most other leaves. That like if you ask a child to draw a leaf, they will make it wide at the base and pointy at the tip. Um, <laughs> and so this is sort of the simple leaf, not very exciting, but they do this to make photosynthesis when they're growing. But at one point, this plant um, turns into a liana, and for that, it needs climbing leaves. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the leaves change shape and they become these like sort of hooked leaves that they can use to climb other trees to um, climb upwards and reach the, the, the top and get the sunlight because that's what the advantage of the liana life cycle or like lifestyle is, is that they have a chance of growing in a densely covered canopy, like under a densely covered canopy in the rainforest, they can grow upwards and actually get some sunlight. Um, so these two things, they're not very special this is like there's other lianas and they have similar things they make leaves and they make climbing leaves mm -hmm. um, but this one has a third kind of leaf and this is a carnivorous leaf it can make at a certain point in life um, change its leaves to carnivorous leaves and they make trap leaves and these are they have like little um, uh, droplets of like a very sticky liquid on them and then insects stick to them and get digested by enzymes that are in the liquid as well um, and there's traditionally, like the young plant, it's, it starts to become carnivorous. And then after a while, it's grows to the liana shape. Sometimes they skip the carnivorous phase. Sometimes they do it later in life. Um, so it's a facultative carnivore. carnivore. So it okay. can sometimes be a carnivore. And that makes it very special because like most carnivores, they are carnivores or they're not. But um, this one can sort of dynamically... Uh, adapt and and change that, and so that in itself is already like quite a cool thing to be a favorite plant. But there has been a paper now coming out um, that's called Carnivory on Demand, and uh, they like I didn't I don't want to give away the whole title because it tells us what what it does. It's from Traut Winkelmann, Gerhard Bringmann, Anne Herwig, and Rainer Hendrich from Würzburg and Hannover in Germany. Yeah, so this this liana, as I said, like it, it it grows in a in a jungle in a rainforest, and the climate it grows in is quite particular. So it's uh, growing in the equatorial monsoon climate. That means has very high temperatures. Like the mean annual temperature is twenty eight to twenty nine degrees Celsius, mm -hmm. a high humidity of seventy to seventy five percent, and a very long dry season from November to May, with like three months in that dry season where there's like hardly any rainfall. Um, so, and then they grow in like very shallow soils and they're quite acidic and they have very low nutrient levels. So overall, like n a challenging Tricky. environment, yeah. which makes it particularly hard to study this plant if you want to study this in, um, in the lab. So it's already hard to study it uh, on site because it's, it's like within the rainforest, so it's not very accessible, but you also can't really study it in the lab because it's really hard grow to it. grow it. Mm-hmm. Like, just to have a greenhouse that supports these conditions is hard. And then if you want to do any sort of, like, tissue culture, um, it gets even harder. And for, like, some decades, there have been some methods around there that made it possible to, to manipulate the plant to some extent. But specifically the part where you want to form roots, which is crucial in tissue culture when you transform it from tissue culture to the greenhouse, this hardly ever worked. 
So um, there were some protocols where um, you had like 20, 30% chance of making it work, um, but not never better than that. Um, and that is whenever you want, that just means you have to inflate the numbers of individual plants that you're working on because only a, a fraction of them will actually do the thing that you want them to do. So now what they did in the paper is they figure out a, a method to uh, grow the plants in vitro and mm -hmm. in the greenhouse. And they found a way to have this root induction with like some very clever short boost of a plant hormone uh, at a specific time at a very low concentration um, that then like is the trigger to form roots. And then now they could ex do experiments on them. And what they did is that they grew them on different kinds of um, nutrient depleted substrates uh, to look at the response. W what kind of leaves does it make when it's lacking potassium, when it's lacking nitrogen, when it's lacking phosphorus? Um, does any of that like trigger the plant development? And they found that only phosphorus had an effect mm -hmm. and that triggered the formation of the carnivorous uh, leaves. So when the plant was starving on phosphorus, it would then form the traps trying to catch insects and then getting the phosphorus from the insects. And um, with that, they could they could show that this is the the thing that in the wild makes the plant decide whether or not to, to form the traps, if, if they see phosphorus or not. Um, and when they're starved on phosphorus, they just eat insects instead. And yeah, that's, that's a really cool finding because that literally like since the 70s, people were discussing um, if if it's a nutrient thing, but nobody was able to test it because nobody could just like technically get this plant to grow in the lab. Mm. Um, and now they did that um, with it the Botanical does. Garden in Würzburg and like the, the Plant Research Institute in Hannover. It does make a lot of sense. And I think I've heard this for other types of carnivorous plants. So I've tried growing carnivorous plants that you like buy from Ikea or buy from the nursery and, you know, growing them in the bathroom because you need them to be humid enough. But I've also heard that depending on what ratios of nitrogen to phosphorus you feed them, it alters whether or not they actually keep on producing like the, the snappy parts or like the little picturey plants uh, parts rather than kind of the more normal leafy leaves. Um, yeah. As a thing. I think, yeah. And, and also other plants altering that will make them either flower or not flower and make more leaves like to try and grow more before they flower. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I also just, um, I was looking it up quickly to see if this was like something that was known. And I saw that there's something from PNAS from 2002, which was sort of showing a similar theme in, in this um, Sarancenia. So it's like this long picture plant. But there they found that it's actually nitrogen, not the phosphorus that that plant is looking for to make mm. him, yeah. him more likely to make more bug catching devices. And you could also like wonder now why why is it not always doing the traps because like it, if it's, it's just a lot an of energy to maintain it right yeah, like it's exactly it's a lot of energy to build you've got to have all these enzymes but then I guess it can also be like maybe a big risk to the plant as well as far as like if that gets a hole in the bottom of it you've wasted all these resources on this one thing instead of like making lots of leaves or making more roots or. Yeah, yeah, and speci specifically for this liana, um, it wants to grow fast. It, like it wants to reach the top of the the canopy, and it needs mm. all of the energy it can sp spare to grow that quickly. Um, and so the carnivorous trap leaves they are just like an expenditure for for sugars. And um, the other thing is, why do we actually care? I mean, it's 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 cool in itself to have like this dynamically. Uh, carnivorous plant but also this is a, a plant that's very unique in in the type of secondary metabolites it makes and it makes a, a, a group of, of molecules that um yeah I, I forgot to write down the name of them but they have been involved in like some pre-trials for like cancer drugs and other medical treatments uh, that are very interesting and now to understand the biology of the plant better and to be able to grow it in a, in a lab and in a greenhouse opens up more possibilities for research on these these drugs but I also i whenever i see like things like kills cancer in in trials um some i also skepticism. always want to re remind people of the xkcd comic where they say like if somebody says um in a pre-trial it kills cancer cells in the lab remember so does a handgun um, because it doesn't mean anything like if if, if it's actually a cure or a treatment mm -hmm. that can be developed from it it just means like it kills some cells and um, a lot of things kill cells that are not good for treatment so 
always keep that in mind when you read these things like oh this this weird plant from the jungle has anti-cancer properties it's just like sure yeah a lot of them do um <laughs> i mean sure not all but sure <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah that's that's my plan. That's that's uh, Trifiophyllum peltatum. Um, the full title of the paper is Canivary on Demand: Phosphorus Deficiency Induces Glandular Leaves in the African Liana Trifiophyllum peltatum. Published in New Phytologist um, just last week. Cool. I'm going to segue from unconventional leafing strategies to some unconventional signals. And this relates to a paper that has just come out or it's kind of available in the accepted manuscript format at the plant cell. Yoram, can you play the paper of the week music for me? We're doing all of the old school jingles today. (laughs) (laughs) It's the paper of the week. Yeah, so my paper is a research article, as I said, from The Plant Cell. It's by Gabriel Robles Luna and colleagues, and it's called Targeting of Plasmodesmal Proteins Requires Unconventional Signals. Um, I think we have to dive into this by first talking about what targeting peptides are. Yoram, can you, can you run us down on that? Yeah, like, <laughs> I hope I remember it correctly from back in the day, but it's like, you have a protein and it has a function like it does whatever the protein does um but when it's most of the time you don't just want to have it hang around in um the the cytosol where it's made where it's like the ribosomes sit and makes proteins you don't want the proteins to all just stack up there and do their thing then you just have a bacterium like you want to send them somewhere and Mm -hmm. to send them somewhere you you use these targeting signals that are at the front like at the beginning of the peptide sequence and some other things recognize them and pull them towards the chloroplast or the mm-hmm. cell wall or the nucleus or um, to the uh, to vacuole. And then they get put there. Often then the, the signal gets then like chopped off and then the protein does its thing at the place where it's supposed to do the thing. Yeah, that's perfect. That's a really nice explanation. So generally it's these like short structures of like up to, you know, a few amino acids, like from something like three to a bit longer, up to 70, according to Wiki. I mean, it can can vary a lot, and we'll get even more into that in this article. Um, that, yeah, is directing where the protein goes, as Yoram said. Uh, Yoram mentioned that it's at the start of the protein. That tends to be true for the proteins we're familiar with, which are getting targeted towards those plastids or chloroplasts. It's also like roughly true for things that go into um, the mitochondria and the ER. But there's also some targeting peptides that can be found in different places. So in the peroxisome, there are some that are found on the back end, so on the C-terminus mm. instead of the N-terminus. And in other ones, they're found like not exactly at the front and not exactly at the back, but somewhere a bit more like near the back or like kind of near the front. So it's not always exactly precise. And the other thing to say is that these signals are not like a conserved sequence of exactly like five amino acids like alanine, leucine, blah, blah, blah. It's kind of a mix of things and it tends a little bit to be reliant on um their functions so like you know if they're hydrophobic or this kind of thing so it's not like super easy to find but we're pretty good at finding them now so like for a long time we've had like ways to look through lists and lists of thousands of protein and sort of say okay we think those ones might go to the chloroplast of course we always have to confirm it so we do things like gfp tagging but we can kind of yeah get a good idea and we're not like terribly bad at that i would say yeah, it's always just like when you get one of these like exceptional weirdos uh, of proteins where you put it in a database and it tells you like we don't really know where it's going like some of the things you can make good conclusions from based on on the structure of these these like peptide sequences but you always like it's always the one that you chose that you wanted to study that were like oh yeah actually nobody really can't can tell you now. You have to do the complicated experiment to figure out where it's actually going. Well, I guess if it was easy, you wouldn't have a PhD project based on that. <laughs> yes. So this paper is about targeting things to the plasmodesmata. I can't even say it, so I'm going to let Yoram explain what plasmodesmata are. Um, so yeah, plasmodesmata, as I obviously know, and don't have to t- have a second take, are the little <laughs> pores in between the cells. So the, the things where if you want to travel from cell to cell, 
in the plant, you don't have just a cell membrane, you have a cell wall that you have to go through. And it's mm-hmm. like a dense, rigid structure. So to have sort of like doors, gateways to move, uh, you have these plasmodesmata. Yeah, so there's a hole in the cell wall, but then there's also kind of linkage like of these like membrane bound passageways. So it's kind of more of, yeah, like a passage than just like a, a hole. Um, but they link to cells, as Yoram said, it's really important for signaling. Um, stuff can go, you know, signals going from one cell to the other and things moving through. It can also be problematic because if you have like a pathogen inside one cell, you kind of want to be able to like not let that go into the other cell. So of course these pores are not just holes. There are these highly direct dynamic, um, tubes which can undergo quite rapid changes in how permeable they are um and this is a response to various things that might be happening in the cell so you know there's some stress or there's like changes in what's happening with plant growth like developmental programs or some reaction to physiological conditions all these kind of things um going on so this is like something that has to happen in the plasmodesmata. And obviously for these changes to happen, you need somebody to be doing the happening and that's where the proteins come in. So of course there are certain proteins that have now been discovered to be localized to these plasmodesmata and are somehow involved in this responsive changes. Um, the problem is that we we don't know really what's, what's sending the proteins to the plasmodesmata. So if if you look at what a plasmodesmata is it's it's got this this hole which has got membrane surrounding it and the membrane is like the normal double membrane and like technically the inner part of that looks very similar to what an er membrane is it's continuous with the endoplasmic reticulum so it's the same type of membrane and then the outer part of that is continuous with the the, the cell membrane the plasma membrane so again same type of membrane so the question is how come, like, what's making something go specifically to a plasmodesmata? They're really going just to these, like, little punctate, these little spots on the cell where the holes are, as opposed to just, like, going randomly to all ER and to all PMs. And, again, not much is known about this. And I think this is kind of an under-researched field as far as even looking into, like, in this paper they were looking at one of these proteins that's known to be localized to the plasmodesmata. It's called PDLP5. Um, And, like, that seems to be a fairly well-categorized one of these proteins in Arabidopsis. But it looks like even then the research only goes back about 10 years. So it's not like a, a hugely well-studied field as far as I can um, tell. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine like there's different things like there's either like an sort of unknown signal that immediately brings the stuff there, but there could also be like a, a degradation thing happening, right? Like it's it's degra- degraded everywhere. Like the, the proteins are chopped up everywhere, but at the plasmodesmata, um, sort of like a, a negative inverse control like mm-hmm. a sort of masking effect where like it's just protected there and everywhere else it's, it gets chopped down but I it's just would... like me speculating like I don't know anything about the paper it's just like me like there could be this thing that just like sends them there but it could also be a thing it just goes everywhere but then everywhere else it gets destroyed you would still need something that went there to destroy them there you'd still need something that like yeah. knows to destroy them at that location so it still has but I mean also I would say like that method of doing it your way is very wasteful. But then on the other hand, it's a pl- like cells are, are very wasteful. They're yeah, like I mean, they're just like throwing rubisco everywhere. So I don't think we can. Yeah, we had some yeah. friends studying these like proteases. So these like enzymes that chop down other proteins, and a lot of them were just like very generally cutting just everything, pac-manning their way through the cells and like knocking it off. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, the other thing is like these are embedded in membranes, and that can make it harder to degrade things. So that might be an argument. Anyway, I think like <laughs> not much known. So as I said, with the what we do know about targeting peptides in like for the chloroplast, for plastids, for mitochondria, things like that, you can generally kind of see some conservation of like the the types of properties or some motifs even. So even if it's not exactly the same amino acid, you do see these motifs popping up. Um, as it turns out when the authors were looking across the different PDLP, so this PDLP is this like group of proteins that go to the plasmodesmata, they basically found that there there wasn't really um, a lot of this conservation that was obvious. Um, there was some conserve motives within the transmembrane part of the protein, but they could so, also show... So that's the thing that goes 
across the membrane, sort of the, the anchor yeah, exactly. that makes it's the thing like sit in the membrane. It's got to itself into the membrane at the plasmodesmata. Sorry, I should have explained that. Um, but they also could show that, that that bit that is conserved, yes, it's it's conserved and helping it go into the membranes, but it's it's not helping us go specifically into that membrane, so not linked to localization. They did have, from their own previous studies, one version of this PLDP5, the, the protein we're talking about here. They had one version where they'd already started sort of cutting bits of it off. So one of the easiest ways to find out what different parts of proteins do is to basically remove bits of it. So like take away the, the, the top half and the back half, so the N and the C terminus, you know, take a chunk out of the middle and see when you remove these parts, what happens. So like, oh, look, we took out this chunk in the middle and it could no longer go into the membrane. Oh, that's probably a transmembrane domain. And, you know, back in the day, I think they were doing this quite randomly um, or more randomly, although even then we had an idea of what sorts of structures are formed. But now we have an even better idea of structural formation, especially with things like alpha form that really help us give an example, an idea of like, if we have this group of amino acids together, it's most likely to form an alpha helix or it's most likely to be a jumbled mass of nothingness. So they turned to this quite short version they had, um, which is basically has the transmembrane domain in it. Sorry. It's got a tail that hangs into the cytosol and it's got a little other bit on it that's only 21 amino acids long. Um, and that part tends to hang outside of the cell, so it's an extracellular bit. And basically, they were trying to say, okay, which of these parts could be... that? That's all there is, and when we have this tiny little short, already cut-up protein, it still can go to the plasmos desmata. So something there must be helping it get there. Um... They looked specifically into that little 21 amino acid part because, as I said, they'd already shown that the transmembrane domain didn't do anything. And they also managed to show that the cytosolic part didn't do anything. Um, and my th my thought is that the, the authors originally assumed that was what it was, this cytosolic tail, because one of the early experiments they did in their paper was knocking that, like cutting that bit off the short guy. But they found that even when they shut, uh, cut that off, it would, could still go to the plasmodus mater. So it's it's not the transmembrane domain, it's not the cytosolic tail, and all you've got is this little extra amino yeah. acids. But then they plugged this little extra amino acid bit into AlphaFold to see what the structure was, and it's basically an unstructured chaos region. And these unstructured chaos regions are a bit useless, like as far as like, it seemed kind of unlikely that this would play a role in guiding anything like it's right. just could, some could they then like my my next experiment would be take like a random other transmembrane protein attach that little tail thing these 21 amino acids and see if that thing goes to the plasmodesmata i think like that would not be sufficient because you'd still need to get it into the membrane so you still need to you have to have already a transmembrane protein. yeah yeah but like take another uh, like okay. transmembrane protein like whatever i don't know there exists probably some others i don't know but um like another protein that's like equally small also sitting in a membrane but at a different place in the cell and then you just like attach this like 21 amino acid tail to it and see if that one goes to the plasma desmata okay so you're actually you're yeah you're actually kind of right they did that but they did a few steps first so the first thing they did they had this short already truncated guy they chopped off the cytosolic part that didn't help. Then they were like, okay, let's try chopping off this random 21. We don't think it's going to work, but let's just try it. And that did work. So once they knocked off this 21, that remaining part of the protein could no longer make its way to the plasmodesmata. And they're like, yes, cool, we've solved it. It's this random 21 amino acids at the very end of the protein. But then they took the full length protein and removed the 21 and it didn't block it. <laughs> So, like, you took off the same 21, but it would still find its way to the plasmodesmata. And in the in the paper, they actually used the word baffling to explain. <laughs> They're like, this is actually just baffling. Like, it doesn't make sense that we could knock it off. Um, so, at the point where you get to baffling, I think this is where a lot of scientists go, hmm, 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 and then bring in machine learning, which is exactly what they did. And they basically <laughs> used the machine learning to develop their own kind of, um, it's a hidden Markov model. Um, so, basically, they're just trying to reason what might be happening in that area that's helpful. Um, and, again, this is... There's not a clear pattern. They're, they're comparing lots of different um, 
PDLP, this group of proteins, but it's not the sort of thing that you can do where you just like stack them up underneath each other in Microsoft Word and like look for patterns. This is a little bit more complicated, which is where the machine learning came in. Um, but basically what that found is that there is a chunk that's not just this 21 amino acids, but about 36 amino acids around the end. And those, that whole chunky bit is kind of important for the localization. Um, but they also found that within that kind of chunky bit, there's a bit at the start of the chunky bit and a bit at the end of the chunky bit, which are required. But weirdly, independently, they're sufficient. So that had kind of, what had happened is that if you chop off the last 21, but you still have some of the other ones, that's still sufficient mm -hmm. somehow to get it. So yeah, so so it's sort of like a no, I forgot what the proper word for it, but like like a backup thing. Like you have like a a plan B attached, like a targeting plan B built into the sequence. So if one thing isn't working, the other thing is working. Yeah, and they they sort of played around then. So they started actually they were doing the the machine learning to find out what which were the important residues, but they they were then backing it up with the the lab science. So creating those variations where they removed parts and seeing what happens with the proteins, whether they went there or not. Um, they hit another problem, which was that even once they could find where these sequences are in the first of their um, proteins, the PADLP5, when they were doing this alignment after um, after that with like different members, so they had eight different members of this family, it wasn't showing sort of any consistent patterns still. Um, and all of these different proteins had really variable sequences where this important part of the protein for localization should be. And again, that doesn't really make sense. So normally you would expect some, like if, if there's a signal to say go here, the signal should look roughly sig similar across different members, right? Yeah. Um, so again, a little bit baffling. They didn't use the word there, but I will. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, they started, again, doing these like knocky-outy knocky bits where they replaced these important parts with just normal alanine linkers. And they were able to show that when you do the replacement, the proteins themselves can accumulate. They look fine. They're not making weird aggregations, but they are blocking the targeting. So although a lot of this doesn't seem to make sense, these they had identified the correct regions that were important um so these two this this sort of region of importance and within this regions of importance the two signals at one end and the other end of this kind of region of importance basically mm -hmm. wow yeah that's that that looks that sounds like a project where like we re need Crazy. really str really strong nerves to get through it where like you have a eureka moment when you find like these 21 amino acids like you're finally we yeah. found it the thing that looks like nothing the thing that looks like garbage has a function let's try it and then oh no it's not working uh, let's look at it further let's like have a robot machine look at the thing like but also like quality to them that they then checked on the full length protein because you yeah. might just be like okay we found it like done and dusted like let's bail on this expert like yeah publish and leave um but they did it and anyway the final step they did was what you mentioned is that they they took kind of like a normal plasma membrane targeted protein they shoved these important sectiony bits onto it and they found that they could indeed relocate a normal plasma membrane protein to the plasmodesmata so they did exactly the yarm experiment of like it's a true address <laughs> targeting peptide where you can now smack it on other things and actually get a successful outcome cool really really cool yeah so i i really like i really enjoyed going through i was going through this paper quite quickly before the podcast but i was like this is super interesting and just this ups and downs of science as you said of just keep going this doesn't make any sense okay let's bring in the machine learning okay it still doesn't make any sense though because even though we've found this one thing there's nothing similar in the, the other family members yeah. Let's try it in the lab anyway. Like just the the grit it takes to hold on and keep on doing this is is As, really impressive to be honest. And especially always going for the confirmation like wet lab experiments that it's yeah. so much work that goes into these things like these these localization things. I mean I don't know what the tools nowadays look like, but I remember a while ago it was it was quite annoying to have like good microscopy images to localize these things and um 
it's yeah it's 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 not very easy stuff to do especially when you're sort of like trying lots of different approaches and trying to figure out which one is the one that that solves the the, the puzzle yeah it's really just like a lot of work and it's a lot of work it's a lot of almost face-based work as far as like this doesn't seem like this should make any sense but like we really do have to rule it out to do the good science and then yeah anyway um yeah so that's something that came out in the plant cell or it's sort of in the process of coming out, just as a reminder, it's called targeting of plasmodesmal proteins requires unconventional signals. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. I brought a fun fact today, um, and it's linked to some other stuff from previous uh, episodes. We talked a lot about like different sound papers, right? Do you remember the one with the the greenhouse sounds where they were like, look, we can actually hear if the plants are thirsty because they're making noises, uh, ultrasonic noises that we can like measure <laughs> from a distance, which is op- like um, different from what we've done before, where we had like like um, surface microphones on the plants and then we could measure sounds on the plants, but they could show that there's actually sounds that travel through the air. Um, so now I found another sound paper just by chance. Maybe it's just like a hot topic right now. Maybe it's just like, Maybe oh yeah. Maybe you're just trolling people. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 mean I, I, I didn't find it by like looking for sound papers. It's just... It was like in one of the like recent news things, um, but maybe it's just like it's it's a hot topic. Like everybody's doing machine learning, but there's like a community that doing sound. <laughs> no, I did I did notice this was sort of something that came up during COVID times, especially during lockdown. There was a lot of sort of people utilizing this, you know, citizen science, but also discussing oh everything's got quiet now we can finally properly listen into nature. So a lot uh, in yeah. the animal scene there came out this kind of acoustic monitoring of animals, but then also acoustic monitoring of like large-scale ecosystem functions and even like geophonic sounds. So like you can hear like ice breaking up or these kind of things. So I think that that has um, actually maybe that's 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 a good point. I think that that could explain how they came up <laughs> with the ideas for this paper. Um, so in this paper, they didn't uh, listen to like thirsty plants. Um, actually, the plants play sort of a side role in that thing, but it's still sort of plant science because it, it all takes part in the forest and talks about forest health. Um, so what they wanted to measure is can they listen to a forest and then mm-hmm. figure out how healthy the forest is, um, specifically the soil. So their idea was that if you have a healthy forest soil, you have lots and lots of different things living there, high diversity, um, like worms and insects and mushrooms growing and um, all kinds of stuff happening in the soil. Um, And their idea was that makes more noise than uh, unhealthy forest floor with low diversity with only like one sad like earthworm in there um, that doesn't find any friends um, and you only hear like the crying of the worm and nothing else so that was the the idea that they had and so they they went to um, like a lot of different sites in the UK in, in forests of different sort of health status uh, from like very protected lands with a high diversity in the soil and to some like that are more agriculturally mm-hmm. ag- agriculturally used um, where they cut down the trees and so on so where the, also like the soil diversity wasn't as high and they in that case they didn't listen to like airborne sounds they took out a sample of the soil put it in a soundproof box and then had like surface microphones in the box so they couldn't li- hear anything from the outside just from the stuff that's in the box um, and they found what they hoped for they found that um um, healthy soil makes more noise there's more lots of like different small sounds that you can hear than unhealthy forest soil um and so that gives the opportunity um to like with very low level of invasiveness and very low technical setups like simple cheap technical setups monitor soil samples Mm -hmm. um and figure out like very quickly is that like a um, a healthy highly diverse soil community or is that an unhealthy soil community and that's that's kind of cool so that can like make it easier to monitor forest health let's talk 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 about bias 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 bias
this is kind of a weird way of talking about bias, but it's not really the normal sort of cognitive bias we talk about with scientists having their own crap they're bringing to the table. It's about bias in sampling, but in a kind of weird way. And it is the bias that comes with doing DNA sequencing. When you take an apple and you sequence that apple, you have a very serious problem, which is the fact that the sequence from that apple, although it kind of represents apples, it in fact only represents that one apple you hold in your hand. Um, and this is a problem that I'm mentioning now because it's kind of recently been solved using inverted little commas around that for humans in the last two weeks. So this is like the biggest news in the genome world, I think, in the last couple of weeks. And that's the fact that they've just published the human pan genome. So mm -hmm. again, like when we have a genome, usually a reference genome for a species, it's very often taken just from one individual or just from a small amount of individuals. Um, so with the case of the Human Genome Project, um, it wasn't all from one individual, but about 70% of that genome was from one anonymous person who, a male person who came from somewhere in the US. Um, and all up it's just a collection of a, a few individuals who put together into that kind of complete human genome which by the way like we had the 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 human genome came out in like 2001 or 2002 2001 yeah, i think yeah, right some, i think 2001 like, was after that, the well, genome yeah wasn't um, in the same year but i think arabidopsis was 2001 but anyway around that time uh, um, but apparently like the kind of the complete genome has only come out like last year because there was a lot of gaps in it still. I mean, not a lot of gaps, but you know, some percentage of gaps and the complete one only came out last year. And then only two weeks ago, they have this pan genome, which is trying to get an accurate, accurate representation of as much of the genetic diversity that is found across the entire species. So in this case, it's important to include like both sexes, but also of course, the diversity of people who come from different geographic regions in the world. And how this is relevant to plants is just the fact that it's worth reminding you all that there are of course also pan genomes that are available for many different types of plant genomes. Um, I'm going to link to a review from a couple of years ago that came out in Nat Plants, but because anything from a couple of years ago is a long, long time ago when it comes to all of this fast sequencing stuff that we're doing now, I'm also going to put another really nice link into a review that's from just the end of last year. And that one has a really nice schemographic or figure, I should say. Figure two um, shows a nice timeline of the pan genomes that we have available for different plant species. So the concept of pan genomes, so getting this genome that represents all of the diversity, all of the genetic diversity of that species. That concept only arose in 2005. Um, by 2014, nine years later, we had started doing it for plants. There was already seven um, different soybean genomes that were collected for the soy pan genome. Cabbage came next. Then there was things like wheat, alfalfa, um, some rice versions, sunflower, tomato, more soybean. Understandably, a lot of these are cultivars, um, like things that we actually use as crops. And part of that is the reason that we want to understand pan genomes to understand which genes are necessary, but also which genes are special extra genes that might confer cool properties to our crops that make them tastier or make them grow in harsher environments. So the pan genome concept has a lot of relevance when it comes yeah. to, you know, future development of useful plants. Um, and it sort of shows the whole timeline um, of where we're up to now. The latest one it has is, uh, in February 2022, 11 varieties of cucumbers came out. I'm sure there's been more since then, but that's a nice timeline. Um, but the the other review also has a nice table which shows you, again, species and what their status is and when they were published. So sort of, you know, how many of these different pangenes exist. But that also shows the number of genes or gene clusters that were missing from this original reference cultivar. And I think this kind of highlights the importance of having pan genomes by showing that if you're really relying on, you know, all the information you know about wheat coming from one single wheat cultivar, you can be missing thousands of genes. I mean, even tens of thousands of genes in some cases, um, which could have really important different properties. So it can help you 
understand these special properties but also help you understand you know the bare minimum of what it means to exist as a wheat so both of those that has like sort of evolutionary consequences so i think pangenomes are kind of a cool thing um it's I mean, it's always that scary thing of like, let's go more meta on our, like, we've already got data, but let's go meta on our data. Like, but I think this is something that just is super valuable and cool. And I think it's also in- inevitable. Um, I've recently, I, I think I'd mentioned this also in a, in a previous show, like pe- talk to a scientist who's involved in like single cell transcriptomics. So this idea mm-hmm. that you're not only looking at the transcriptome of one plant, but sort of like all of the gene activity, all of the gene expression that's going on, but doing that, like sorting your cells into different types and then measuring that. Um, and it creates like these huge, like multi-layered, like multi-dimensional data sets that you have to like go through where you can't just only say like, oh, we, we're starving this plant of phosphorus and therefore this like these 10 genes react to that. You can say that now these 10 genes in the leaves react to that uh, opposed to like the same 10 genes in the roots do something completely different. And mm-hmm. it's like, it gets insanely more complicated. And I think we will see that on all levels now. Like, Yeah, I mean, you're the, going the, into the resolution. Like, so you're sort of zooming. The pangenome is, is almost like zooming out like bigger and larger. Yeah. And you're like zooming in at that very like fine scale of yeah. how and we do you, things. You, and you just have to deal with like all of that complexity in in these data sets. It's, it, it will get quite complicated, I imagine. <laughs> but also, like the tools are evolving as well. So, so just like a, a real time correction here, I just look up like Arabidopsis was published. The whole genome was published at the end of two thousand, so almost two thousand one. Yeah, end of two thousand, and the Human Genome Project was completed in two thousand and three. So three years later, in two thousand one, they the had like an initial, out, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They the initial analysis, but the the completion of the project was two thousand and three, and as we just learned, like it's not it was never like fully finally completed. It was just like this part of the project, and but like the genome is constantly like worked on. I I have one other thing which is kind of related to what you were just talking about, this kind of zooming in side of things. So another paper that just came out in the plant cell, um, I'm really favoring them this time, but they had some nice stuff. Um, This is a breakthrough report, which I think is their version of a slightly um, shorter publication format. Well done, the plant cell makes it easy for me to read things quickly. Um, And here, this is people trying to work out what sort of proteins you might find in the pyranoid. So over to you, Yaron, what's a pyranoid? Oh, I just like, as you were saying, what was the pyranoid again? <laughs> um, that's, isn't that the, the Robisco carbon concentration mechanism in Clammy? Beautiful. So Yaron is right. It is a carbon concentrating mechanism that's found um in Chlamydomonas, most famously, but also I think like many different algae. And yeah, as we've mentioned many, many times on the podcast, basically in order to fix carbon from carbon dioxide, you need to use an enzyme called Rubisco. Rubisco is a bit useless at recognizing carbon dioxide. Sometimes it sees an oxygen and gets confused. So in order to solve this problem, all different types of green things have come up with various ways to try to make Rubisco only see and only love carbon dioxide. Um, and the pyranoid is the way that clammy and other things do it. They basically have this kind of, yeah, concentrated mass of everything put together. Um, and it's almost like an organelle. So it's almost like having, you know, a chloroplast or a mitochondria where you separate this compartment for a specific function. In this case, the function is having this this concentration of um, carbon. Um, the problem is it's not an organelle in the way that an organelle is because it's not surrounded by membranes. And this is where you then have a problem if you want to identify what exists in this paranoid. Um, because when it comes to membrane um, surrounded organelles, you can basically physically separate these organelles from the rest of the cell contents um, with different processes. And then once you've got them fairly concentrated, you can like grind it all up and throw it into a mass spec um, to find out what proteins exist there. But these pyranoids are often together in a sort of, yeah, more... What's even the right word? It's a it's a less kind of permanent, a less tightly held together way. So you can't separate them physically easily from the rest of the cell. If you start adding different things to the cell, you're just going to like 
they sort of float into vapor mm-hmm. um, kind of thing. So it's been quite a bit harder to find out what exists in these kind of um, compartments, these kind of micro compartments compared to um, in other compartments. Yeah. I would say. Um, by the way, the perinoid is inside the chloroplast. That should be perhaps mentioned. But just to say, there's this problem, which is the the lack of the physical membrane and, and trying to get things out. So one of the ways you can find stuff that's in an area as opposed to surrounded by a physical boundary is basically know something that's in that area and send that thing that goes to that area in with basically a paintball gun and tag everything else that it, it looks at. I think that's the simplified way of putting it. <laughs> is it is it so, the, the ubiquitination stuff? Is it- uh, yes, basically that. So this one is not ubiquitination-based. Um, it's biotinylation, oh, but yeah. it's basically the same yeah. thing. Um, yeah, you're basically getting a protein that you know goes to this paranoid. You're tagging it with something that is basically hypercharged to biotinylate everything it comes into contact with. Um, the great thing about biotinylation is once the protein is biotinylated, it's it sticks pretty well, and it also sticks really well to some other things. Um, and we can put those other things onto magnetic beads and basically pull out all the biotin, like literally just like yoink them out um, once you've ground up the cells. Yeah. It's, I mean, Yoram, you've kind of done this in person, basically, the pulling out part, right? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've done that. I tried to remember what like the other part was that mines to the biotin. Um, but um, but yeah, there's, you just mix like your 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 magnetic bead as you said like they're very sort of very p- specifically sticky to that thing that you want to pull it's, down it's streptavidin is the thing yeah so streptavidin binds the biotin and this binding is like crazy tight yeah. like it's you can like throw heat at it you can throw acid at it you can like i don't know throw adamantium at it it's really hard to release them again which is great right yeah yeah exactly and then you can pull that stuff down and um then then analyze it and it so they did that to the paranoid? Yeah, so basically there's two different methods that have previously been used for this. There's something called Turbo ID. Um, this is one of the methods of biotinylation um, that's already been established in Arabidopsis. There's another thing that's called Apex 2 that's already be- been established really in cyanobacteria. Really cool names. <laughs> Turbo ID yeah, and Apex, Apex 2. 2. It's just like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that one's been established in cyanobacteria. Um, the problem is neither of those are Chlamydomonas. Chlamydomonas is an algae. So the, basically this publication is the authors trying both the apex and the turbo in Chlamydomonas, finding out which one worked. And they were able to successfully get the turbo ID to work. Um, by doing this, they, so they, they tagged a couple of things that they already knew were in this paranoid with this turbo ID that went in there, shot up everything else with this um, biotin, and then they were able to pull those kind of close to known members of the paranoid things down. And in the end, I think they found seven potentially paranoid proteins from this pull down. <laughs> Um, That's four Yoram's bees. <laughs> Potentially huh? paranoid per- proteins from in the pull down. That's, that's like the, one more piece. From proximity labeling, in fact, is the proximity. I thought Yoram was laughing because he's done pull downs, and usually when you do pull downs, you get a list of like 50,000 no, no. things, and you have I'm, to like. I'm not, I'm not that clever. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing okay. at lots of P words. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But yeah, but it's right. Like the, the the problem always is with these kind of experiments. Um, you're sort of like shotgunning this biotin around, and you have like it's it's really hard to trust that the things that you are finding then in your analysis are not just like thing like off targets stuff that randomly were by chance too close to where that like blast of biotin happened, um, and mm. so you often need like other methods or other things or like very careful analytics to to figure out if that's actually like in this case the paranoid yeah so the the reaction from this turbo id thing it it is like very spatially limited so it's restricted to like only 10 to 40 nanometers around the dude who's doing the shooting basically 
Um, maybe that makes it less likely that you get so much random crap. Um, yeah, but I'm but then sure. you have to be sure that like the thing is only firing exactly where it's supposed to fire and not like on its way to the pyranoid um, or stuff like that. And I mean, in- I think it depends on the different signals. So if there's like a lot from anyway, yeah, I don't know. Exactly, this is but definitely the way point out is, of my thought. it's complicated. It, <laughs> the point is, well, whatever their cutoffs were, they managed to find. Um, seven that they think hey this could be interesting and they tagged they did fluorescent tagging of those seven and based on that six out of the seven were localized to what they think is sub paranoid regions so Mm. they tested out this method um got it working in clammy so it can now be used in chlamydomonas for other things so that's cool yeah protocol and then also found up to six potential new paranoid proteins so that's also cool really really cool and then they can stick that thing again the turbo again to the six new ones and find again six new ones and it's like a mlm (laughs) scheme of protein yeah everybody has to recruit six more proteins (laughs) um and then of course the 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 final step is we put paranoids into every other species of green thing and improve photosynthesis and win the world yeah absolutely um all all problems solved um (laughs) um despite our our cynical tone i it's a really cool paper like i think like this is really nice worker yeah yeah that that, that's really cool um we're just laughing at the like very often stated thing like and then potentially down the road this will like feed the world and like cool down the climate and also give us a back rub um it's like yeah, Such baby steps. Expectations <laughs> from your proteins. Yes. Cat fact. I found um, a plant-based cat fact, but it's not really about cats. Um, it's about um, cats that that are spiders that pretend to be ants. Um, there is jumping spiders, specific jumping spiders um, that... Oh, but jumping spiders are very cat-like spiders because yeah. they pounce on things. They, I, I recently learned on, <laughs> on the Baby Geniuses podcast that jumping spiders are beginner spiders and by some like uh, misogynistic dudes considered uh, girl spiders because like the women, the like in the spider community, in the we grow spiders at home community... Um, there's like the cool tarantulas, that's a guy spider, and there's a jumping spiders, that's are the teeny little girly spiders. According to okay, like, so firstly, like they, in they're community literally pa- um, BS. They're literally pouncing on their prey at lightning speeds like a freaking jaguar. And on the other hand, they definitely are girl spiders because when I was a small girl, I used to go around my house trying to collect them and put them in my bedroom because I love to watch them jump. <laughs> like, it's just, they are the cutest freaking, sp- they're just the best. Yeah, they get they get even more cuter now because um, in the paper that we're linking, um, it's called Imperfect Ant Mimicry Contributes to Local Adaptation in a Jumping Spider. Um, they looked at the jumping spider, Sealer Collingwoody, and um, there is a figure that shows you sort of like a TikTok dance that the spider does, but it's just mimicking ant movement because ants have a very specific way of moving in the habitat that the spider lives in. Uh, First of all, in a way, like if they go in straight lines or if they would go more in like a curved pattern, but also like um, the ants... They, they walk a bit and then they stop and then they walk a bit and they stop and then they walk a bit and they stop. And this jumping spider is mimicking that behavior. And it's also sticking up its tail like the ants do. And it's using its two front legs to pretend it's to be antenna. And it just walks on its six of its eight legs so that it looks like an ant. Wow. Um, and interestingly, it's absolutely not colored like an ant. And that's where the plant part comes in. Uh, it has like a very bright green and red color that looks like the plant that it's usually found on. So it also has like a visual camouflaging that's only working when it's in the plant thing. But when it's moving, it moves like um, it moves like an ant. And um, sorry, is it eating the ants? No, it's, no, no. It, it just it not- does it 
like uh, the the thing is why it's doing that is because it uh, wants to be confused with an ant because its own predator, the thing that eats the jumping spider, is another like bigger jumping spider, um, and that bigger jumping spider doesn't want to attack ants because the ants are very like uh, like not efficient food for it, but they have the potential of damaging. The, the attacking spider so it it wants okay. to avi- avoid a fight with an ant and it only attacks another jumping spider if it's sure that this the other thing is actually a jumping spider um wow. and so by behaving like an ant this like little jumping spider um protects itself uh but they also like they did like um experiments where they put like the predator and the prey together like the prey jumping spider and the predator jumping spider and they could show that when the prey jumping spider it's confusing because they're both jumping spiders um when it would do like the ant like behavior it would be attacked much less likely than um if it would if they use another species that doesn't do the mimicry that doesn't pretend to be an ant but they also took uh brought in um mantises praying mantises that are much more generalist hunters they attack anything Mm -hmm. and they're also bigger um, so first of all, they don't care about attacking ants because um, they can't be damaged by the ants, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, they also don't care about like this distinction between the jumping spider and the ants. They, they like the the ant camouflage, uh, the, the spider camouflage doesn't work against the praying mantises. So they ha- seem to have a very specific mimicry slash camouflage to avoid other jumping spiders. But a- against a praying mantis, it doesn't help they are just viciously that's attacking so anything cool that's such a cool story yeah and it has like really cool figures as well in the paper uh, especially like you like the patterns how they walk and like and and like a little diagram showing like the the movement patterns and uh how yeah the figure two is where it's at there's like walk 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 bum in the air walk 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 bum in the air <laughs> <Like> <laughs> yeah, exactly so cool um and and that's how that little jumping spider avoids being eaten Amazing. I think that's it for today, yeah? That's what we're bringing bringing to you. Um, Some of those facts were about plants. Um, I mean, this spider looked like a plant. It's it's much more (laughs) plant-related cat fact than what we had in the past. (laughs) Um, If you want to find more of us, we're on Instagram or Facebook at Plants and Pipettes. You can also chat to Yaram on Twitter. That's at Plants and Pipettes. At Plants Pipettes. At Plants Pipettes. Or it's on Mastodon, but it's Yoram can't at, remember what we are. That's that's plants and pets. Usernames are hard. You know what? It, We're going to put the links in the show notes, guys. Exactly. Um, <laughs> You'll we'll find see us. you in a couple of weeks' time, potentially. Yes. Well, we'll do our best. Thank Bye. you. Goodbye. Goodbye.